Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. A warning before I begin. This episode contains references to sexual assault. Tomorrow morning, the janitor's going to come in here and sweep you out with the rest of the trash. Unless, of course, you do the honorable thing. Get in the elevator, go up the roof, and jump off, huh? <laughs> Dallas was the campiest primetime TV show going in 1984. If you wanted to escape reality and immerse yourself in a world inhabited by the stereotype that defined the 80s, wealthy, greedy, immoral capitalists, Dallas was it. Phyllis Cottle, her eyes covered with bandages, sat up in her hospital bed and tried to get someone's attention. It was 9.45 on Friday night, three days after she was admitted to Akron City Hospital. In 15 minutes, her favorite TV soap, Dallas, would come on TV. She called out to one of the sheriff's deputies who guarded her room 24-7, Dolores. I uh, was assigned up there a Friday night. What were police afraid of? He would try to come back in there you know, and finish what he thought he had already done. I'm sure it shocked him that she was able to get out of that car. For days, Phyllis had mined her memory for any small detail she had inadvertently neglected to tell detectives investigating her case. Here's Phyllis in 2004. It didn't register in my mind at the time, but I'm laying in that hospital room, and all of a sudden, I remembered what I saw sitting in the corner. And I, I rang the bell. I don't know if there was any police around, but I said, I, I, I need to talk to the police. Get a, get a police officer, anybody. And I said, I remembered something. And uh, the police saying there was somebody there, and I said, a bumper jack. I was in the corner, it looked like a bumper jack. It's a bumper jack. It was in the corner, and it looked like a bumper jack. I just always think that the last thing she saw was him. Yeah. She was just focused on remembering little aspects, what had happened, so she can, you know, get with the detectives and get them know all the information she could was coming back to her. And I think, you know, she was just so focused on getting, nailing him, you know, and giving that information. Phyllis also remembered something else. Her attacker had worn some kind of cotton garment with a drawstring under his pants, not underwear. Remembering that awful detail must have been an excruciating, exhausting process. Phyllis needed a break. She needed Dallas. Phyllis come and she goes, hey, um, can you help me get my TV ordered? You know, and I said, yeah, what do you need? She goes, well, I want to watch the uh, show Dallas. Remember, there was a big show at the time. And I says, oh, yeah, I go, that, that was my favorite, you know. Yeah, she goes... And I told her that. She goes, well, would you like to come in here and watch it, you know, with me? And I said, you know, I let me check with the nurses and stuff. So we talked to him and Phyllis talked to him and they said, sure, go on in and we'll lock the door. 
So, and they did. So we ordered Dallas and we sat there and watched it that night. So on that night, Phyllis turned off the memories. It was just two women glued to the TV show Dallas. One the protector, the other the protected. One who could see the action, one who could only hear it. They watched and listened, transfixed, as the shocking end of season seven would build to a climax. Someone would shoot the fictional Bobby Ewing in the head. It would be a tough case. The bullet would blind Bobby. I'm Carol Costello. This is Blind Rage, Episode 6. Who would do this? Detective Chris Contos is the antithesis of TV's ragey Elliot Stabler. I know, I keep referencing Law & Order SVU, but that's how a lot of people think sex crimes are investigated, how detectives actually do their jobs, and they admire that. There's a YouTube channel dedicated to the fictional Detective Stabler being a dick. What do you want me to say, that I fantasized about killing the perp? Did you? Yeah, you're damn right I did, and this time I fed him my gun and I pulled that trigger. Yeah, I can't imagine Chris Contos doing that. Contos is quiet patient. The only things he has in common with Stabler are A, he cared, and B, he was a handsome dude with thick, dark hair and dark eyes. In 1986, two years after Phyllis was attacked, Contos investigated Sherry Walsh's attempted rape. It was an assault eerily similar to Phyllis's attack. Walsh, now the present-day Summit County prosecutor, was also carjacked at knife point in broad daylight. Here's how she describes Detective Contos. He was very patient. He could see that I was frustrated when I was forgetting things. He was asking for, you know, descriptions on what he was wearing. And I wasn't entirely sure. And and I just was still trying to process the fact that I'm dressed up and I'm leaving to go to work. And some madman with a knife tries to, you know, grabs me by the throat, jerks open the car door. And, you know, you just don't expect that to happen. But I remember... Detective Contos, you know, just assuring me this is normal. It's okay. You don't, you, you know, aren't going to remember everything right now. You just went through a horrible trauma. Um, putting a notebook and a pen, like on my end table in my apartment, and saying, "Here's what I want you to do. Over the next couple days, you're going to probably remember things. And every time you remember something, grab that pen and write it down on a piece of paper." I'd like to think Contos's technique was, at the very least, refined by Phyllis Cottle. In March of 1984, Detective Chris Contos stood in the woods near where Phyllis's car had been found. He looked around, took in the scene. A footprint had been found near the car, just the outline of a shoe, no treads, not much help, if any. A tin can had also been found, smelled funny, didn't know what it was yet. I suspect Contos played 20 questions while he studied that crime scene. Why did the suspect drop the car off in this particular spot? Sure, it provided an escape route, but did the suspect live near here? He had to take off on foot, so where did he go? Oh, this place, I I have tired here. Today, I'm in a car with Contos. We're driving through the neighborhood on the other side of that wooded area. I had a homicide at the house right back there. (laughs) Yeah. A guy was sitting on the porch on the rail, and a guy came up behind him and stabbed him in the back. It amazed me how many details Contos remembered over the decades he served. But then again, maybe his job is a lot like reporting. Those violent, emotionally wrought stories stay with you. 
forever. I think he's going to try and catch a bus down here, and he didn't want to stand out on the road waiting for the bus. Contos figured the guy who attacked Phyllis panicked as he ran from the car. He would have been desperate to get off the streets. He couldn't risk standing at a bus stop while dozens of police cars responded to what he'd done. That would be too risky. So where would he go? But top of mind was, is the question we all have. What kind of person would do something like this? Even with all that you'd experienced and all the cases you covered, you still thought this was particularly... Very, very, very difficult to, and very aggressive, very violent. What did that tell you about the suspect from the get-go? I felt it would have been someone who's done some serious crimes before. I mean, it wasn't a guy's first time. We had serial rapists here that... You can see them go through there. At first, it's a certain type of rape, then he gets more aggressive, then if the victim fights back, he gets more aggressive, and then he takes a weapon with him to the, when he breaks into the house and assaults someone. Or, or you know, This guy was right at the top. He had the weapon. Uh, he did the most vicious thing you could do to someone, I believe. To solve crimes, you have to understand them. You have to understand the criminal mind is not normal. He or she does not reason, does not react the way you or I do. I want to bring Casey Jordan back into the mix. It wasn't that impulsive of a crime because she had encountered him on the street uh, maybe an hour before he abducted her. So. The fantasy was swirling in his mind. She was, you know, on her way to a home and garden expo or something. Are, are you closing? And she said yes. But she didn't go to her car. She went and ran some errands, then returned to her car. It meant that he was stalking her. And everything starts with fantasy. And from fantasy, it goes to stalking. From stalking, abduction. It usually ends in murder. Casey is a criminologist and forensic psychologist. It's a frenzy at the very end, an absolute frenzy. There is no logic to it. There was logic leading all the way up to his decision to stab her in the eyes and his decision to set the car on fire. That is pure panic. He is no longer organized. He is decompensating. He, it's as if he's been operating in a fantastical fugue and now reality is really setting in. It's almost as if at the very end, he really kind of had this come to Jesus moment, if you will, where he was like, what am I doing? She's seen me, we've been to the bank, you know, I've raped her twice. This, there's no way I can get away with this. Not that he has any regret. He could have easily made sure that she was dead, but he did not. And that's just sloppy. That's, that's not him having remorse or having regret or hoping she escapes. That's just him in a frenetic final denouement to, you know, several hours of horrific crime. Um, just being sloppy and trying to get out of there. More when we return. Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads, but this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. 
head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. Hi, Vanessa. Hi, Amy. And hi, Hi, True Crime Crime fans. fans. We're the co-hosts of She Goes by Jane. Every week, we'll be covering the story of a missing or unidentified woman in the United States. Stories you may have heard before. And ones whose stories didn't make it into the news. We've been covering these stories for a while, first in Amy's book of poetry, Doe. And then in Vanessa's documentary, She. But now we want to share them with you here on She Goes by Jane. And each week, we'll be joined by a special guest who will read a poem in honor of the women we talk about. Can we say who? We can say who. We'll be joined by actresses like Coco Jones and Gabrielle Ruiz. And musicians like Stephanie Quayle and Kelly Moneymaker, along with authors like Louise Penny and Catherine McKenzie. So check out She Goes by Jane wherever you get your podcasts, or check out Evergreen Podcasts and their true crime channel, Killer Podcasts. We can't wait to bring you these stories. As a young reporter at WAKR, I only knew the most salacious part of what happened to Phyllis, not all the details I'm sharing with you now. Nobody did. As I told you, Detective Contos was off limits to reporters. Everything went through a police PR mouthpiece or the chief of detectives, and they told us squat. That fueled our speculation and later our collective aggression toward getting Phyllis on camera. Yeah, there was that, but that's a story for later. Here's Mark Williamson, TV23's anchor. A psychologist would probably say it was his way of making it impossible for her to not just like see, but I mean in the big picture, it's kind of like blinding her to everything that happened, if you look at it metaphorically. It's how we talked about it back then and talk about it today. Of course, we're not experts. Back to Casey Jordan, the criminologist. I also found it was unusual that he targeted a 44-year-old woman because isn't it usually younger women or do I have that wrong? It has to do with vulnerability more than anything. The choice of victim can be something very personal. Uh, Sometimes we have attackers like this who are triggered by sublimation, if you will, that their victim reminds them of someone or symbolizes a type of victim that they, you know, the persona of which they want to destroy a mission-oriented killer uh, or attacker or rapist. You're about to hear our voice of the court. This is part of Phyllis's testimony. Quote, at one point he said, well, do you know why I do this? And I said, no. And he said, well, I don't just rape white women, I rape black women. Later, he said, a white man had set up my mother for a black man to rape and murder her, end quote. If indeed Phyllis was the first white woman he attacked, what he said to her, this is based on Phyllis's words in court, that not all his victims were black really does indicate that he had done this before. But here's the indication of paranoia, that all the women he attacked had all lied. And that makes me wonder if the police had questioned him in the past and that he was, if you will, being a grudge collector. He was building up his anger and paranoia uh, about the women he had attacked who had informed the police, perhaps even threatened them so that they never followed through. But he seemed to be plagued with the idea that Phyllis, as a white woman, if she called the police, the police might pay attention. The suspect asked, quote, are you going to go to the police? Miss Cottle replied, quote, I promise you I won't go to the police, 
The suspect then said, quote, You lied to me. You'll go to the police. They all went to the police. End quote. They all lied. Why even say that to Phyllis? And the fact that he said he hated white people makes you wonder if something recently had happened in his life that triggered it. It could be something as simple as a female white clerk in a store looking down her nose at him if he took too long to count out his change. It could be something like that because it would balloon huge in his mind um, where Phyllis simply symbolized uh, a type of victim he wanted to destroy. It wasn't personal. They had never met before. But for some reason, he chose her. And I, I suspect in his paranoia, if indeed he, he had signs of schizophrenia, it would just become larger than life. He would symbolically try to attack Phyllis for what she stood for, not who she was. The top brass in the Akron Police Department were painfully aware of the kind of criminal responsible for Phyllis's attack. And they knew he'd do it again, unless they threw every resource they had at him. We thought, we gotta get him off the street. I mean, it's not gonna be, uh, we gotta get this guy. That's why we put so much effort. A whole police department, patrol and detective bureaus, and everybody. We really had a lot of people working on the case. How many people would you say? I know we had every shift. Our shift in Detective Bureau was the biggest. All our unit was on it. So we had uh, maybe 10 or 12 guys in our unit. Then, But that's our shift alone. Then the next shift and the shift after that worked on it too. And we got the information out to patrol. Uh, and these guys, they'll stop people, you know, they, they, they stop people on the street and they clear it themselves or they, they had, they brought guys in. Detectives worked on the premise that this guy had to be in the system, the clunky system that was the system back in the dark ages. There were no central computers in the 80s. You couldn't punch in similar crimes and come up with a list of offenders. Police had to rely on tips, sources, or their partners and hope someone came up with a likely suspect. Next week, manhunt. So this is a, a neighborhood bar. The guy's never been in there before. He was nervous, walking, pacing back and forth. Well, he called a cab. And that, to me, that was the greatest thing that happened right there. For us, the dumbest thing for him. <laughs> Carol Costello Presents Blind Rage is a signature show of the Killer Podcast Network. If you enjoy this series, please subscribe and rate it on your favorite listening apps. And discover more great true crime and paranormal programming at killerpodcast.com. And if you want to discover more about this case, follow me on Instagram at Carol Costello. You'll find pictures of Phyllis, newspaper reports, crime scene photos, and more. Blind Rage is a co-production of Evergreen Podcasts and Carol Costello. This episode was produced by Chris Iola and me, Carol Costello. Additional thanks to audio engineer Sean Rule Hoffman, contributor Nyjah Galladay, production director Bridget Coyne, and executive producer Gerardo Orlando. Original music is composed by Timothy Law Snyder. All of the information in this podcast came from my memories of the event. Phyllis Cottle, her family members and friends, former law enforcement, prosecutors, former and current journalists, police reports, and court documents. I've tried to tell this story factually to the best of my ability, but sometimes memory fails. It's been a long time, but my goal is simple. Phyllis was an amazing woman, and her story of courage should be shared. Hi, I'm Matt Harris. Seton Tucker and I 
host the podcast Impact of Influence, which for two years covered in depth Alec Murdoch, who was eventually convicted in 2023 of murdering his wife Maggie and son Paul. That story continues to evolve, and we will cover that. Plus, we will tell you stories of other true crime events that have happened in the South. Please join us on Impact of Influence. And give us a follow on the Impact of Influence Facebook page.